Welcome to the Greenwood Forest Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Stacks, and you are listening to episode four of the Theology of Inclusion. Glad to have you with us. So this episode is about disability inclusion. Um, Episode one was a general theology of inclusion introduction. Episode two was about LGBTQ+. Episode two was about LGBTQ plus inclusion. And episode three was about racial and ethnic inclusion. Um, Now, if you're thinking through those topics, you'll notice that I've um, kind of made a a pretty serious omission, and that is about um, gender inclusion uh, or the inclusion of women. And I wanted to speak to that really briefly before we move on to disability. Um, uh, Part of the reason for that is that here at Greenwood Forest, um, we, we are speaking from our own context here. And at Greenwood Forest, we have a pretty robust um, uh, we have pretty robust power sharing between uh, men, uh, people who identify as men, and people who identify as women. Um, we have a woman senior pastor. We have a woman chair of deacons. Uh, uh, more women than men on the on our uh, board of deacons uh, usually. Um, but um, I don't want to suggest that that lets us off the hook um, about continuing to pursue. Uh, the destruction of patriarchy within our congregation and within the world. So I just wanted to um, add a note here at the beginning of this episode um, to say uh, a couple things about gender inclusion. The first one is that the biblical narrative um, and, uh, and the biblical witness really contradicts itself regarding gender inclusion. We should be honest about that. Um, much of scripture is tainted by patriarchy, and there are passages that suggest limiting church leadership to men. Um, I don't think ignoring that fact is uh, the way to go about um, deconstructing patriarchy within the church. So the biblical witness is um, it, it is kind of um, contradictory on this point. At the same time that much of scripture is tainted by patriarchy, there are women throughout scripture assuming leadership, preaching, prophesying, uh, and performing radical acts of spirit-empowered faithfulness. So... Um, The Holy Spirit seems not to listen to our patriarchal ideas. Women are called into ministry and leadership every day. Women make up the majority of faithful church attenders in this country and do not uh, and do the bulk of the work to sustain church life. They always have. So um, regarding inclusion of women within the life of uh, congregations, we must continually rid ourselves of patriarchy in the same way we do homophobia and racism. We are not beyond this. Um, just because we have women in leadership. Uh, those women will tell you we are not beyond this um, just because they have representation. Um, patriarchy is insidious, just like racism is, and it adapts when it's threatened. We must look for both explicit and implicit ways that we, um, as communities of faith, devalue the leadership of women, and we must continue to work to eradicate all vestiges of patriarchy from our life together. Um, uh, we have to uh, call people out or in when we see um, something that doesn't live up to that value of inclusion. Um, and uh, I just like to put one more fine point on this and to say that uh, you know a lot of churches think that representation is enough, um, and we really need a better analysis of power with regard to gender inclusion. 
Um, just because you have a woman pastor or women in leadership does not mean that um, that you have divested of patriarchal power. Um, and so that's something that we need to think more clearly about as, as congregations, even progressive congregations that think they're good on um, the point of gender inclusion. So having said that, I want to move on to um, the focus of this episode, which is on uh, disability inclusion. I'm going to be using um, a couple of uh, resources here, um, writings from uh, the disability uh, scholar Brian Brock, and um, most importantly, um, The Disabled God by uh, Nancy Iceland. Um, Those are uh, kind of foundational uh, resources with regard to uh, disability theology that um, really anybody who wants to approach this topic should, should be um, taking a look at. Um, I've, but uh, before we get on to Brock and, and Iceland um, and kind of constructing a, a theology of disability inclusion, I want to read you this quote from Rosemary Garland Thompson um, as a way of defining disability. Disability is an overarching and in some ways artificial category that encompasses congenital and acquired physical differences, mental illness and retardation, chronic and acute illnesses, fatal and progressive diseases, temporary and permanent injuries, and a wide range of bodily characteristics considered disfiguring, such as scars, birthmarks, unusual proportions, or obesity. Even though the prototypical disabled person posited in cultural representation never leaves a wheelchair, is totally blind, or is profoundly deaf, most of the approximately 40 million Americans who are disabled have a much more ambiguous relationship to that label. Disability then can be painful, comfortable, familiar, alienating, bonding, isolating, disturbing, endearing, challenging, infuriating, or ordinary. Embedded in the complexity of actual human relations, it is always more than the disabled figure can signify. So right away, I want us to begin to question um, what we think of when we think about disability. It's a much broader, much more um, ambiguous, uh, much more human category than we often think of. we being um, abled people. So the the next thing I want to talk talk about is is scripture. Now, scripture has a mixed record on disability, much in the same way that it has a mixed record on gender inclusion. Um, For much of the period in which the Bible was written and edited, compiled, um, disability was thought to be a punishment from God. Um, I think of the story uh, where disciples come to Jesus and say, who sinned? Um, to make this man disabled. The modern version of this theology is that disability is a consequence of the fall. Now, you'll hear this. um, This is very prevalent in Christian communities. Um, Most of the time, disability is used in Scripture as a negative metaphor for ignorance, sinfulness, etc. Healing narratives in Scripture often reinforce the idea that people with disabilities must become abled in order to be included or be whole. And all of this, in addition to cultural attitudes and prejudices, 
has led to the inability of most churches to adequately address people with disabilities um, and to alter their common life so that people of all abilities are included. Here's a quote from Brian Brock um, that I think is also important. The medical model of disability in our society positions disability as the biologically rooted incapacity of an individual to achieve mainstream pictures of economic productivity and aesthetic beauty. To present Jesus and his activity as a healer as a precursor of that modern medical project is to annex him as an ally of a violently paternalistic desire to fix every so-called disabled body and to make it normal. So Brian Brock is calling our attention to the fact that there, there's alternative ways to interpret Jesus's healing activity that doesn't fit within this um, medical model of disability in our um, 21st century uh, American society. Um, and that's what we want to kind of hone in on. In order to do that, I really want to um, move to the most important stories with regard to disability theology, and those are the resurrection appearances of Jesus. So um, I'm going to assume most people listening to the podcast are very familiar with these resurrection appearances, but um, I just want to point out that... uh, when Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection, um, there's a couple of things that are really vital to, to, to remember and to focus in on. The first is that Jesus is disabled after his resurrection. His body um, is, is physically still injured um, in a way that um, is really surprising when you think about it. Uh, I think many people would expect when, when God, um, when the God human is resurrected, that all of the scars and the, and the pain of his violent death would be erased. But that's not what happens in the resurrection appearances of Jesus. Um, instead, Jesus asks his disciples to come and to touch his disabled body at the sight of those um, injuries. And then we also have uh, images of the disciples caring for Jesus after his resurrection, fixing him food, um, such as what happens in Luke chapter 24. So here's a quote from Nancy Iceland about um, the resurrection and its importance uh, to what she calls the disabled God. At the resurrection, the disciples understood the person Jesus for who he really was. Only through the lens of resurrection could they understand the meaning and significance of the life of Jesus on earth. In the resurrected Jesus Christ, they saw not the suffering servant for whom the last and most important word was tragedy and sin, but the disabled God who embodied both impaired hands and feet and pierced side and the imago dei, the image of God. Paradoxically, in the very act commonly understood as the transcendence of physical life, God is revealed as tangible, bearing the representation of the body reshaped by injustice and sin into the fullness of the Godhead. Luke 24 and John 20 and John 21 show the resurrected Christ making good on the incarnational promise that God would be with us, embodied as we are. 
In presenting his impaired hands and feet to his startled friends, the resurrected Jesus is revealed as the disabled God. The disabled God is not only the one from heaven, but the revelation of true personhood, underscoring the reality that full personhood is fully compatible with the experience of disability. I want to read that last line again because it's really important. In the resurrected Jesus, we see that full personhood is fully compatible with the experience of disability. Here's a few other points to consider from um, Nancy Iceland's The Disabled God. The first one is that the disabled God repudiates the conception of disability as a consequence of individual sin. Disabled bodies participate in the image of God, not in spite of impairments, but through them. Second point is that the resurrected Christ, in presenting his impaired hands and feet inside to be touched by frightened friends, alters the taboo of physical avoidance of disability and calls for followers to recognize their connection and equality at the point of Christ's physical impairment. Third point I want to draw out is that Christ's disfigured side bears witness to the existence of hidden disabilities. For many, whose hidden disabilities keep them from participating fully in the church or from feeling full-bodied acceptance by Christ, accepting the disabled God may enable reconciliation with their own bodies and with the church. Fourth, the disabled God is a God for whom interdependence is not a possibility to be willed from a position of power, but a necessary condition for life. For many people with disabilities, too, mutual care is a matter of survival. A resurrected Jesus who needs care and mutuality debunks the myth of individualism in which transcendence means breaking free of encumbrances and needing nobody. The divine is somebody in relation to other bodies. And fifth, the disabled God makes possible a renewal of hope for people with disabilities and for others who care. It is not a utopian vision as the erasure of human contingency, but a liberatory realism. It locates our hope in justice as access and mutuality, a justice that removes barriers which constrain our bodies, keep us excluded, and intend to humiliate us. And lastly from Iceland, the image of the disabled God proceeds from Jesus Christ's embodied commitment to justice as rightly ordered interpersonal and structural relations. This is a God who indicts not only deliberate injustice, but unintended rituals of degradation that deny the full personhood of marginalized people. The disabled God defines the church as a communion of justice. The church must live out liberating action in the world. The church finds its identity as the body of Christ only by being a community of faith and witness, a coalition of struggle and justice, and a fellowship of hope. This necessitates that people with disabilities be incorporated into all levels of participation and decision-making. So lastly, I want to bring up um, the disability, uh, disabilities critique um, of some of the things that we um, have assumed. Uh, the first one is that um, disability can 
critique the, uh, the concept of inclusion that we've been working with for this entire podcast. Um, because truly including people with disabilities shows the faults of inclusion, um, that inclusion sometimes does not structurally alter communal life. People with disabilities can't simply be given access to a fundamentally ableist way of life and be expected to fully participate without radical reorientation. So creating a community of belonging for people with disabilities requires true inclusion, where power, practices, and culture undergo significant change. The next thing I want to say is that disability brings a really strong critique of capitalism, Our society and economic system marginalizes people who cannot be quote-unquote productive, which means that our capitalist system has no use for people with disabilities. Since the first followers of Jesus, the church has witnessed to God's abundance and the fact that non-normative people bear God's image. Um, An example of this is that um, oftentimes people with disabilities would be um, abandoned by uh, their birth parents in um, Roman times, for instance, and the early church uh, was known for going out into the woods and finding these infants and rescuing them. Um, So we must now continue to embrace that witness by declaring in every aspect of our lives that humans are not valued by what they can produce in an ableist world, but because they are beloved by God. So let's talk just really briefly about church practices in light of disability inclusion. Um, The first thing I want us to think about are, um, as Baptists, as people who believe in believer's baptism, um, is that people with IDDs and mental illness can challenge our conception of belief and call into question many of our assumptions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, If we think about the fact that we require certain kind of intellectual, um, there are certain intellectual hurdles that one Uh, is supposed to to jump over in order to be baptized in our congregation, we might need to rethink um, what our qualifications are for someone to become a follower of Jesus in light of what people with IDDs teach us. Uh, The second thing I want to consider is the Eucharist or communion, um, which is a sacrament that declares all bodies are loved and valued by God. Jesus offers us his disabled body at the table But do our table practices make real our remembrance of the disabled God? Do they really make good on our commitment to access and inclusion? Or are we at the very place and in the very practice where we should be offering the disabled body of God to all? Are we reinforcing ableism? So it's really important for churches like ours to reconsider um, all of our practices and all of our, the structure of our life together um, to, uh, to reimagine them uh, in the light of the fact that uh, God is a disabled God and God values people with disabilities as beloved. To bring home uh, some of these points, I'd like to um, play you an interview uh, with uh, one of our members, Kevin Schaefer. Um, so let's hear from Kevin. So my name is Kevin Schaefer from Cary, North Carolina. And I work for a company called BioNews, which is a media company that focuses on rare diseases and disabilities. And I have a long time uh, sort of involvement in different disability communities. And then with the church, also a long time member in different ones and recent member of Greenwood Forest. Awesome. 
Thanks, Kevin. So can you tell me what it's like to search for a faith community um, as a person with disability? Um, did you have any negative experiences with that that you want to share, um, particularly with churches who might say they're welcoming and maybe not follow through on that idea all the way? Sure. So I didn't really start searching on my own till later in life, uh, like late teens, early 20s, because uh, my family and I grew up in the same church uh, until I was 18. Long story there, I'm not going to go into right now. But um, but anyway, we left there. So I was always a member of that church growing up, and it is still a formative part of my life. Um, but when I did start more kind of on my own, when I went to college, and then searching for new communities. Uh, so in college, I was you know looking to get involved in campus ministry. Um, I ultimately did InterVarsity, which I really liked, and they were ones that kind of reached out to me. They were really good about um making it is inclusive and like for what for example one of the things that really stuck out to me was uh anytime we had meetings at like someone's house or something like that they would go out of their way to make sure if it was possible for me to attend they would you know and and even if there were some instances uh where i couldn't they were always willing to go out of their way to make a way so that's probably my first point in that is like you know i realize not every um, event. This isn't just in churches, but this isn't anything really. Not everything is going to be accessible. I recognize that. Um, but it's when you make that effort to, that makes a world of difference. And right. so just doing everything you can to include people um, is makes a really big difference. And, and especially today with you know, a mix of virtual and in-person stuff, virtual has really opened doors for a lot of people in the disability community. Because, I mean, I'm pretty active and I'm able to get out from pretty much on my own. Uh, but there are a lot in my community that can't. And so virtual gives another option there. Yeah, um, but, absolutely. yeah. So those are kind of the thing. Like, I would say the biggest thing to look for when I'm looking for a faith community. Um, and that's one of the things I felt when joined Greenwood Forest is, like, going out of the way to make you feel included, you know, sure. is a really big part of it. Absolutely. Um, so... What does it mean to you for a church to be truly? We kind of already answered this, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Um, if, would you add anything to, to the idea of what it means uh, to you for a church to be inclusive? Yeah, I mean, I would say most churches out there, you know, they say they're welcoming and stuff like that. I don't want to bash anyone in particular. I'm saying I think what a lot of churches aren't conscious of is the way that they're unintentionally excluding people. And uh, this is just something that unless you have a lot of, uh, in my case, disabled uh, members you're not going to be aware of so for instance if every youth event let's say is like you know a camping trip or a skiing trip and all that all those things are great and like i said i realize that um not every event is going to be fully accessible and i don't want it to like to come across as like burden so you know like and interfere with some of those events but when you make like every event like that yeah. then that's definitely exclusive so it's having that mix of things and so um and i get and like like i said earlier about having events at people's houses like that's a big thing with i think modern churches today is you have sunday morning worship and then small groups and stuff meet at people's houses throughout the week which i get in a sense like there's an advantage to that because it makes it more kind of like um like kind of like welcoming kind of modernized you know like and it's um i I guess something like that makes it more casual and more inviting to a larger group of people and stuff like that so i get and it's very it makes it more family oriented so i get that but at the same time 
if that's if there's no other option, mm. then that leaves a lot of disabled people, particularly wheelchair users like myself. If the house is inaccessible, then yeah. that's something that. Um, so I did write that into a column too, because I mean sure. that's not again any one specific church. A lot of churches do that today, and it's just something to be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great example of like something that seems like a great idea yeah. mm-hmm. if you're coming from yes. you know an yeah. able perspective, and you yes. haven't you just haven't considered how it can be a problem. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, what? Is there anything else you would want churches who are working towards inclusion to know about your experience in church? Um, I mean, overall, I've had a lot of positive ones. I've negative ones as well. But um, that, I'm trying to think. Uh, that's really one of the big reasons I, well, there were a number of reasons I kind of went away from the church I was at for a while and never joined. But um, but that was one of the things. It was all the small groups were all off campus on right. at people's houses and stuff like that. So I did feel kind of like, okay, that's not like, Okay, for me and it's just it's recognizing things like that and um I, I talking to more disabled individuals because um because as i'm speaking just as a wheelchair user like i said the company i work for i work with all kinds of people um from invisible disabilities to uh, wheelchair users to you know people who use oxygen rate regularly things like that there are a number of reasons why some disabled individuals might feel uncomfortable in either a large setting or um, might feel that something, an event or something is exclusive, is exclusionary um, and not as inclusive as it could be. And so I think it's just a matter of really, A, putting it in there in church statements. That's one of the things that attracted me to Greenwood Forest is like putting in the statement, we're inclusive of all people, um, LGBT, racial, uh, disabilities just putting that in there is a good sign because that's like okay they're actually thinking about that you know right. and um from there you can have conversations if you don't even put it in the church statement or anything like that then it's hard to find evidence of there actually being a welcoming inclusive environment sure so it's a matter of just opening doors for those conversations because like i said there are needs that um, friends have that i don't have that um, in order to be able to go to an event and stuff like that, that churches should be aware of. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it puts it on the agenda, at yes, least, right? Yes, exactly. It opens up the, the possibility of conversation and moving and exactly um, towards people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, because I'm speaking, as, like I said, I'm pretty extroverted, and I never really had hard times in youth group or something like that, like, growing up. But still, a lot of times it would be, um, like, especially if there's a... Like, you go to a youth group, then you go to dinner after, and then, you know, people are like, hey, let's go to a movie after, or something like that. When it's a lot of things like that on the go, yeah. that makes it really, that makes it hard for me, and definitely makes it hard for other disabled individuals, too. Um, yeah. And, I mean, and I saw, too, like, I had um, a friend with autism, like, um, in church I grew up in, that I definitely saw her kind of be excluded from a lot of things, and um, and so it's a matter of just being sensitive to those needs and having... Just, just opening your mindset to different uh, types of events and types of social interactions that are more accommodating for everyone. Yeah, yeah. and not getting defensive when exactly. Someone... <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you might consider something yeah. else here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Awesome. All right, Kevin, I really appreciate it. Thank Absolutely. you for sharing yeah. your, your stories and your perspective, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
Thank you for joining us uh, for this series, Theology of Inclusion. There's obviously a lot more that we could continue talking about and will continue to talk about. Um, But for now, I'm Stephen Stacks. Thank you for listening.